Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very happy to have Dr. Bruce Robbins on the show today. We're going to be talking about his new book, Criticism and Politics, A Polemical Introduction. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Robbins. I'm very honored to be here. So I wanted to start with just, you know, kind of an easy question of like how this work came into being. What sort of drove you to write this book right now? Um, those easy questions always end up to being harder than, than you think you know, softball, but with a little spin on them. Um, I got kind of sucked into argument over what I saw as a move against, a move to kind of depoliticize criticism, which I saw happening in a number of places, some of them kind of more subtle and some of them less subtle. Um, There were subtle things like, uh, my colleague Sharon Marcus uh, calling for surface reading and objecting to reading in depth, which always seemed to turn out to be political reading, um, which was you know subtle and interesting. And then there were things that were much less subtle and, to my mind, less interesting, but also were kind of calling me out, like uh, Rita Felsky's book, The Limits of Critique, um, which which really kind of made my blood boil. And I got asked to give an opinion, and I kind of went off the handle a little bit, uh, expressing myself quite strongly, I think, on the subject of why this is not a good picture of what criticism has actually been doing. Um, and it's sort of pushing things in, in a direction that I think we should really worry about. Anyway, so I wrote some politi- some very polemical things, and I wasn't entirely happy with the polemical things, uh, partly because I was clearly out of control and very, very close to ranting. Um, but also because, you know, intellectually speaking, I thought it would be good if I could kind of take a step back and actually think about the genuine issues that were being raised here in a slightly more dispassionate spirit. Um, hence the kind of juggling of polemical on the one hand and uh, introduction on the other, the subtitle, polemical introduction. 
So I sort of tried to make it as much of an introduction as a polemic. And uh, all of the friendly readers that I consulted said, it would be better if you could take some of the polemic out um, or just kind of downplay it a little bit. So, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about this. Some part of me really wanted the polemic to be um, as out of control as I could make it. So, for example, when Ridafelsky presents criticism as completely negative, as only fault-finding, um, I was reminded of William Sapphire's speech for Spiro Agnew, in which he talked about the cultural left as nattering nabobs of negativism. And I wanted to make a connection between uh, between Riefelski and Richard Nixon, basically, um, which some people would certainly think of as out of control. And I left that in uh, just because, I don't know, maybe I was too pleased with it. Um, and I didn't mind being a little bit angry in, in prose. Uh, people do pay attention more when you're angry. But yeah, what what where the book comes from is that I, I was really upset, um, just to repeat myself, with where I thought uh, a certain tendency was going. And I guess I also was upset because it seemed to me that the crisis of the job market, which, you know, as a relatively young person, you're probably more aware of than I am, since I'm kind of, you know, protected from it, um, that, that that was making people vulnerable to this line. Uh, vulnerable, that is, to the line that, you know, the older generation has made all these big political noises, but we don't have the luxury to think that way because we are so desperate just to survive. And that kind of retrenchment, kind of um, pulling back from the big ambitions of earlier decades, that seemed to me uh, falling on kind of receptive ears because of the crisis in the humanities, because of the, the economic situation. Um, and, you know, obviously I can't do anything about the, the economic situation, you know, personally, except to say that it's in part a result of the culture wars that I'm so interested in in the book. That is to say, the defunding of public institutions of education, uh, you know, is a successful result of a right-wing offensive. So the kind of thing that I see the, the kind of anti-political critics uh, adding to is actually the same movement that produced the, the job crisis and the the funding crisis in education that makes people now susceptible to that message. Maybe that's too complicated, but it was it was something like that that I was I was thinking about. Yeah, well, you said a lot of things there by way of opening, um, and I have a lot of follow up questions. But first, I'm well. First, I'm, I'm curious about what you think the state of we'll say like literary education or literary criticism is today, right? Just if you had to, because one of the one of the things that you often kind of sidestep in your book sometimes are, are, are questions of value, which obviously questions of value are always sort of political questions. But it kind of, I don't know, I wonder what you would say to, you know, you've been at Columbia for, for a long time, you've been a professor for a long time. 
how is it that students come to literature in your classroom? Does it seem as sophisticated as it once was? Does it seem less sophisticated? Um, do you find that your methods of teaching have changed? Do you find that students' reasons for being interested in literature has changed? I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, I almost feel like asking you to say more about what's behind the question, than, but that would be more interesting to me, at least, than my answer to it. Um, um, well, what's behind the question is, is you know, uh, you know, kind of how you answered the first question was, you know, you wanted to write the book as a polemic because there's a move to sort of depoliticize criticism. But I wonder, I mean, I think that move arguably is, as your book would argue, is, is political in and of itself, right? It's a belief about what literature should do and be and what literary education should look like. And so I wonder, given that literary education has changed, we all agree about that. Um, I wonder what you think about those changes and how they're manifest in the classroom, because this is a question that I found that just wasn't, it didn't seem to be broached in your book. It, you kind of stay with critics and the sort of implications of their ideas. And I'll have questions about that, but I am curious about what you think about, okay, well, do people read well today? Um, critics, students, right. anybody? Right. And if not, where would we locate that? And if you think they do, I'd be curious to hear about the ways in which you think people read well today. Yeah. Okay. That that's that's helpful. Um, I don't have complaints about the students who show up in my classroom. Um, I'm not one of those people who think that students don't know how to read anymore or aren't interested in the things that I would wish they would be interested in. Um, I'm on the whole kind of really pretty pleased. I mean, of course, you know, here we are after two and a half years of pandemic, simply to be back in the classroom feels great, you know, and to be seeing as much of their faces as I can see above the mask, which is a little frustrating. I'd like to see more, you know, get a little more, more feedback of, of the facial kind. But no, I mean, I'm really, really pleased at the, uh, the degree of interest that students show in the kinds of things that I, I know I'm I'm interested in and that I'm I'm trying to teach in the classroom. I don't think that criticism has changed. This is this is part of my polemic, in the sense that all students want to do is find ways of finding fault. Uh, I think that criticism has always been appreciative uh, in a fundamental way, and that students are actually um, rightly so interested in appreciating great books. I mean, if they're thinking existentially, they're thinking, you know, this is a probably a, a short window in my life seen as a whole when I have a chance to read some of the best things that have ever been written and, you know, think thoughts in a freer way than I'll probably be able to think them, you know, when I'm holding down a job, God willing, you know, and, and working a, you know, a full week, again, God willing. Um, so, I mean, this may be Columbia, where to some extent students are a bit more insulated from economic pressure than they are in other places. I taught for 17 years at Rutgers, and it's a state institution where people were often working like 20-hour weeks, undergrads, in order to be in school at all. So, you know, the circumstances were a bit different. In any case, I don't think that there's been a fundamental change. Um, I think that 
uh, criticism has not turned into a, a kind of competition to who can find more faults in you know the great works of the past. Uh, I think people are interested in appreciating a wider range of texts than they used to. So, for example, I mean, you are, among other things, an African-Americanist. You will know, I mean, at least certainly this is true at Columbia. I don't know if it's true everywhere, that there's a fabulous interest in African-American literature, the full range of it, you know, from early on to the most contemporary. And that's kind of great to see. A lot of it is you know, just the kind of mix of critical and appreciative that I myself am happy with. You know, people are asking hard questions, you know, James Baldwin or Richard Wright or, you know, whatever. And they're exploring new areas like uh, black writing in Europe, for example, that my, my colleague Brent Edwards, you know, has really put on the map in a big way. Um, and that is really interesting to me I mean, I'm teaching a course on atrocity, for example. And uh, for this, I discovered like William Gardner Smith's The Stone Face. I don't know if you know this this novel, uh, which happens to have one of the most extraordinary descriptions of a massacre in the streets of Paris on the 17th of November, 1961, of Algerians who were demonstrating for Algerian independence. I mean, this is a wonderful kind of international constellation, right? It's about black writers uh, taking advantage of, you know, the difference between being black in Paris and being black in the U.S., but also suddenly discovering, wow, some of the things that we care about back home are connected to things that we might never have known about back home, like the, the struggle of Algerians and the racialization of Algerians, in, in France. So there's a, you know, a great big, wonderful world of, of connections, which are being appreciated, I think, by new students, by the students these days, and that students are very enthusiastic about. So I don't know, I, I don't think that your question was asking me to complain about the students. Well, um, I think I'm trying to um, understand the distinction you're making between sort of what might be called fight fault finding and the word you're using, which is appreciating. Um, I think I'm, I'm interested in that because, you know, often in your book, you, you have this move where, you know, you're thinking about folks who are, who are more into various kinds of formalism versus folks who might be, and these are crude distinctions versus folks who might be more into kind of sociologically informed readings, right. Or, or at least open to that charge. And so I am I am curious about this question about whether or not you see the kinds of questions that students bring to bear in the classroom changing over the course of your profess you know of your being a professor. I'm curious about that. And then I'm also curious about um whether or not the, the questions you're bringing to bear change. I mean, you, you mentioned just, you know, just the, the fact of different kinds of literature in the university doesn't necessarily clarify how it is we should attend to literature, I don't, I don't think. And so, so my question is, I, 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 my question is really about, you know, where do you see these changes happening? 
do you see them in the classroom at all? And if not, that's fine. I, I was just curious about it because I still do have this question of appreciating like the value of literature. And even in your own responses, you kind of invoke evoked like thinking about 18 year olds. Well, this is a period in their life where they'll get to read some of the greatest things ever written, which seems to me to be a very kind of traditionalist way of thinking about a literary education. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So that, sorry, that's a jumble of things, but the main that is thing a lot is, of things. Uh, the difference between fault finding, appreciating in terms of the argument and polemic that you're you're making, and we can back up and clarify that. But yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, where do I want to go with this? Uh, so I'm teaching this atrocity course now, and one of the the figures that uh, I teach in the course is Bartolome de las Casas this Dominican priest in the early 1500s who basically devoted his life to uh, objecting to the treatment of Native Americans by his fellow Spaniards. I mean, he just didn't do anything else in life except that. Um, And he's kind of a heroic figure. But I had never taught him before. I certainly had never been taught him. And I asked a colleague in the anthropology department who had taught him what it's like And she said, well, you know, people are going to find fault with him. In some ways, he's really, you know, a problematic figure. He's a figure of his own time. You're going to have to work to get them to see him as important at all. Uh, I feel like I didn't have that problem, but only because she had warned me. So I just kind of led with all the things that were wrong with him. And, you know, tried to put him in a wider context of the big question that my work on atrocity is inspired by. When and how and why did it become possible for Europeans to criticize themselves for their mistreatment of non-Europeans? When did that happen? Assuming that it has not always been happening. And I think that's a fair assumption. Um, And if I fit Las Casas into that story, I think people are ready, first of all, to appreciate what he did accomplish uh, by seeing him in in connection with the people who came before and the, you know, people who've come afterwards. So this is an act of historical contextualization. Now, I talk in the book about the controversy over historical contextualization. That is, what you were referring to as formalist uh, could also be seen as critics who say, look, the important thing is what happens between you as an individual right now and this text. Does it speak to your heart? What happens between the, between the two of you? Context is kind of irrelevant to that maybe we have gone too far in the direction of context and we haven't paid enough attention to what is, if you want, genuinely revolutionary about uh, the experience of literature, which is in that moment of experience, as if the fact that, you know, something was written in 1532 or, you know, 78 AD or whatever, it's, uh, it's irrelevant because, you know, nothing around that time uh, ought to be considered. What matters is, does it speak to me now? Um, and, you know, there's enough truth in the fact that 
the stuff that we do wouldn't work if literature did not overcome its own period and continue to speak to people. If we were just looking at the literature of the past as artifacts from a long time ago, look how weird people were back then when, let's say, in the Iliad, you know, you could do the exchange of women, men could do the exchange of women and fight over who got what. Um, and that was totally, you know, seen as morally fine. So the Iliad has got to kind of speak to people. Um, I, so I have a chapter in which I try to uh, finesse, if you want, the problem of historical context really should matter, but also how something speaks to you in the present should also matter. Mm. Uh, I, I can go on. I'm sorry. This is going to maybe mean me taking up too much, too much time. I, I see the move to historical contextualization as a result of the 60s movements. I mean, that's an argument that I make in the book. That is, there was a move from literature is eternal, the great works of the past speak to you in the present, um, you know, as if they had been written yesterday, which is sort of what literary study was like when I started studying it, um, to thinking, don't you have to kind of ask what society was like in that time and who was getting consulted? The fact that women writers, you know, there were no women writers, you know, in the canon, all that stuff. This is, uh, these are consequences of the 60s movements that, that it's part of the default that now we ask, you know, who was being consulted, who is part of the story, who is kept out of the story, uh, and does not all that matter. Um, I'm trying to defend the move to historical contextualization, which I think became dominant as the effects of the 60s movements were felt in the institution, while also recognizing the fact that the literature speaks to us across time. So there's a whole chapter trying to explain you know, how, how that would work. Sorry. It's hard to remember everything you say in a book, you know, that was handed into the publisher a year ago. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, but just trying to, to understand um, your polemic about some of the, the, the writers you're, you're certainly sort of arguing with. I'm curious about, do you think there are any sort of excesses to historical contextualization? contextualization as it plays out in literary criticism today? And do you think it's possible that some of the critics um, who you're responding to and in vehement disagreement with are, you know, engaging in rhetorical acts to push against that, those excesses? Uh, the answer to that is yes. There are definitely excesses, in my own opinion. Um, and the people that I'm arguing with have a point to the extent that what they're thinking about is the excesses. Uh, and sometimes I get as angry at the excesses as they do. So one of the examples that I give in the book is somebody who said, uh, a woman who said, I will never read a word by David Foster Wallace from this day forth. And the argument in the essay is, uh, not what might have been legitimate. Like, I really don't like the way he presents women in his novels. No, it's not that. 
It's I don't like his dating habits. For example, the fact that when he was going to Alcoholics Anonymous, he would date women that he met at Alcoholics Anonymous. That to me is an embarrassment to the profession. That is just not a legitimate argument. It is an excess. And to some extent, the movements of the 60s made possible excesses like that. My, my argument is, let's not take the excesses for the rule. I mean, on the whole, what happens is a lot more reasonable than that and a lot more nuanced and a lot more balanced. That's not representative of what you know contextualization means. Contextualization, obviously, meaning a number of different things. So, yeah, uh, in, in that sense, it's, it's I, I, I do agree with you that there have been and probably will continue to be excesses of this sort, and I uh, deplore them as much as anybody. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, I wonder um, to what degree do you do you understand your your critics to be advocating for um, you know a style of reading that is sort of exclusively formalist, and and the reason why I ask this um, is because again you know sometimes what sort of crops into into your reading sometimes is the idea that sort of formal even as expansive new formalisms are somehow this thing that happens to white texts and then the, all these other texts sort of introduce, you know, the need to speak differently about literature. And so I, I wonder about that. And I'll give you an example very, very quickly. Like I, we read Ann Petrie's The, Spe- uh, the Street in one of my classes. And in that book, Ann Petrie sort of evokes Benjamin Franklin a great deal. And a student of mine, one of their only questions was, didn't Benjamin Franklin own slaves? And the problem with the question is that one presumes that Anne Petrie didn't know that. Hmm? And two was sort of unwilling to engage with Anne Petrie's deployment of Benjamin Franklin as a certain kind of symbol of a set of ideas about America. Like that just interrupted her ability to understand what this black woman author, the first black author, male or female, to sell more than a million books what this author was trying to do. Um, and so, so to me that uh, I, I wonder, I, I just wonder if, um, I wonder if you see your critics as, as sort of advocating for an exclusive style of reading literature. And then I also wonder the degree to which, um, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's good. Sure. No, that's, that's a great question. A great example. Um, and it, it helps me try to, uh, do better articulating, you know, my own position. Um, I have a problem, as I think you have a problem, with uh, taking writers as representative of their constituencies and basically as, as doing nothing but representing their constituencies, you know, positively, negatively, you know, whatever. There are obviously other adverbs that could be brought to bear there. The obvious um, 
problem with that is you don't give the writers credit for being writers, for doing what writers do. Now, you could call that formalistic um, criticism, but let's just say the aesthetic value added that Anne Petrie or anybody uh, puts into their work has to be appreciated. When I say appreciative criticism, I guess I'm saying, among other things, you know, let's look at artworks as artworks. And of course, you have to be formal in order to do that well. Um, one of my objections to the Ridefelskis of the world is that they didn't realize that the Marxist tradition, which is probably the one that I'm closest to, has been saying that for a very long time. I mean, someone like Frederick Jameson, who was the target of some of the critiques of critique, you know, has been saying, if you don't see formally what a book is doing, you're not seeing its politics. Its politics are not something crude, you know, like labels or flag waving. I mean, the politics of a work are, are in its form. And so that's a really important thing to say. It's, I'm sure, what you try to get readers of the street to, to recognize. You know, I'm giving you this book because it's a really interesting aesthetic object. And I want you to see how interesting it is. Um, the question of whether Anne Petrie is allowed to use Benjamin Franklin, you know, if Benjamin Franklin did indeed own slaves, I don't know the truth of that. That, to me, is a question about how, how you imagine history and how you imagine your own place in history. And the person that my go-to person for this is Franz Fanon. Because Franz Fanon said as eloquently as anybody needs to say, there is nothing written by anybody out there that I do not claim as my possession. You know, um, and what I take him to be assuming is that all history is full of imperfection and, you know, worse than imperfection, things that, you know, you would have to deplore. And if you were living through them yourself, you would probably want to revolt against them. But that's simply what history has been. What do you think? That there's a spotless record back there in which anybody, let alone everybody, but anybody, you know, did not have uh, things that we would very much object to now. That's just what history is. And to the extent that literature is a record of what people have been thinking and feeling and imagining and hoping within that history, of course, literature has been marked by, uh, by the imperfections of the history it's part of. I, I just take that for granted. But of course, I'm, this is another th argument that I make in the book. Um, if people were more conscious of that, and if they thought about their own place in history, I think they would find themselves better able to judge in a kind of balanced and not hyper-moralistic way the stuff that they're, that they're reading. Uh, it means a certain amount of self-scrutiny. You know, it's not as if I'm living in a perfect society now, you know, or I know anybody who is untainted by the imperfections of the society we're all living in. So you kind of let people off the hook on, on some level, um, and you appreciate what's there to appreciate. You deplore what needs deploring. But you don't 
I mean, I suppose this is young people's thing, you know, say it, I won't read you unless you're a saint, unless you're, you know, sort of perfect on all, by all criteria. I don't, does that speak to your, your entry? Yeah. But I guess what I'm, I'm curious about, you know, given that answer is, I'm curious about, I mean, your answer, it seemed to, I'm curious about the difference between the two positions you roughly stick out in your book then, right? Because sort of in responding to the Anne Petrie, Petrie question, you, you kind of invoked what sound to me like Arnoldian sort of literary values, right? So you said, you know, reading a book, if you understand it sort of, if you understand it fully, you can sort of judge in a balanced way that has, that seems to me to have an ethical and moral dimension. And so I'm just, I'm curious about it. Like at the same time that there's this, it seems like defense of a certain kind of reading that you say entered into literary study in the 1960s. There's also, also whenever there's a need for, for various things to be adjudicated in terms of interpretive problems, there's this sort of reliance on, on sort of older modes of literary interpretation um, and criticism. And so I'm just, I'm curious if you could maybe for me stake out what you see as the, as the crude rough positions that you're arguing between, because to, I mean, I agree with you absolutely about the Anne Petrie thing. Um, but it, it sounds to me as a bit different than the kind of reading that you were sometimes advocating for in your book. And I, I think one of the students who might be a fault finder, for example, might say that, well, her invocation of this man is suggestive that of, of sort of other errors in her politics and in her thinking and in her regard for black life. Right. I mean, you could see that argument, maybe not there, but certainly with other books. Sure. Um, I don't know. I, I, I hope this is not a trap that you're laying for me. Oh, it's that, not a trap. Uh, I'm genuinely curious. Like I'm genuinely curious about how you understand the two positions because they seem to me very related. And so that's, that's all I mean. Right. Right. No, I meant a trap, a trap only in the sense that you were sort of, laying it out as if there were very, very crudely binary positions that I was arguing back and forth between. And in fact, you know, I'm trying to smoosh these things together to show certain continuities, which again, I think, you know, on the whole, you and I would probably agree about. Um, so uh, where it would, it would maybe come to a head is, you know, I, I was not suggesting that the only thing about the street is an aesthetic value, which is separable, entirely separate from uh, what she's saying about black life and the relation between black life and white life, uh, you know, which brings Benjamin Franklin in there. Um, no, I mean, I think the, the sort of deeper or finer, more refined truth of what, you know, a, a classic like that, um, is doing uh, is to be found, yes, in representation of black life, but in the formal work that that novel puts into uh, puts into itself, so that you know you can't just talk about it formally without talking about the representation of black life, but you also can't just talk about the representation of black life without talking about the the formal dimension. Um, you know, to some extent I am defending somewhat traditional ways of reading because I think that somewhat traditional ways of reading had room for a lot of, you know, nuance, what we used to call ambiguity. When I was, when I entered school, we were taught to find ambiguities. I still do, you know, and I think I still teach my students to, 
because it the ambiguities are there and they're important. Um, so no, I mean, I'm very disappointing as a revolutionary. I'm not calling for a revolutionary new mode of reading that, you know, completely breaks with that traditional past. Not at all. Uh, And what's awkward for me is the extent to which I'm sort of defending the status quo in, in criticism, you know, against those people who say, you know, the politicizers have completely destroyed criticism have made it sort of fall from its its high place. And of course, then they add because they're being really nasty. And that's why nobody respects us out there in the larger world, because we're not doing what we, you know, we should be doing what we used to be doing. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, whatever drop in prestige may have happened, that's a question. Um, it's certainly not because there has been an over-politicization of criticism a certain amount of politicization has been happening at least since Matthew Arnold, which is to say when, you know, the vernacular literatures became university disciplines. Um, so, you know, there are breaks and I'm very glad they, they, there have been, and roughly they sort of follow the influence of the sixties movements, race, gender, uh, sexuality, and so on. Unfortunately, not class as much as it should have been, but that's a historical fact that the, 60s movements weren't as good at class as they were at race and gender and sexuality. But anyway, these are good things and they're good for the, uh, they're good for democracy, not just good for our discipline. Well, I'm curious, um, you know, I'm curious how you would respond to like a, a kind of a fairly like regular cultural war type question, which is like, how, how should we decide what we read? You know, it's like a basic question of criticism, right? So, so given all the positions that you sort of stake out about criticism and politics, you know, if we think that criticism performs some kind of um, duty in the world, you know, how is it that, how should we decide what we read? How do we make decisions about that or what we teach? That's a better way of putting it, what we teach. Right, right. No, I understand that. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is going to be just a grab bag of things. It's not really a principled position. Um, I do feel in my own teaching that I have an obligation to uh, represent the world for my students. That is to give them the sense of the variety and the differences that are out there. Uh, But I mean, I teach like a course on world fiction since 1965, you know, and I really try to choose things you know, by women as, as, as well as men from this country and this region, as well as that country and that region. Um, I stay away actually from American writing. I, maybe this is a mistake on my part, but I feel like the students are going to read the American stuff anyway, so that they should read things from South America and Africa and Asia, you know, that they're maybe not going to read. So yeah, I, I choose the stuff that I assign partly because of where it comes from. And because I think that even, you know, maybe it's sad, a course like mine, World Fiction Since 1965, is probably for a certain number of students where they're going to find out more about the history of the world than they're going to find out elsewhere. Uh, Because there's a certain amount of stuff that, you know, if I teach Marguerite Duras's The Lover, which is about, you know, when, when what's now Vietnam was a French colony, 
and a love story between a, a young French girl and a Chinese businessman. They're going to find out a few things about the world that they really might not have known when, you know, when we talk about that novel. Uh, okay, so that's one main criterion. I don't assign anything that I think is really bad. So I'm not doing what a literary scholar might want to do, which is to illustrate how good the good stuff is by contrasting it with how bad the bad stuff is. I don't care. I mean, I care, but I care in a scholarly way. I don't care in a pedagogical way. Pedagogically, I feel like these kids are, have, have a very limited amount of time. I have an unspoken contract with them to make sure that they spend their time doing reading things that are really worth reading and not making some kind of scholarly argument that I want to make. So I try to only give them stuff that in one way or another is really good. Uh, it, I feel like I have a pact that I have to, you know, I have to uphold on my side. Um, so those two things are, are very, very visible to me as principles. Um, sometimes I, I guess I feel like I need to, need to surprise them to give them something that they really might not have discovered on their own, uh, a kind of, of literary value, a kind of representation of a place or an issue uh, that you know they might not otherwise have access to. Um, not all the time, you know, there, there are things that I teach uh, in this world fiction since 1965, for example. Uh, I always start with a Sudanese novel called Season of Migration to the North. I don't know if you've ever encountered this. It's, uh, it's an absolutely brilliant novel, formally, formally amazing, by a guy called Tayeb Salih, who basically took Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and kind of reversed it. So the, the, it's two Africans who travel to the heart of darkness up the Thames. And one of them, like in Conrad's Heart of Darkness, is kind of observing the unspeakable acts uh, committed among white women by the first one. And the second one is horrified by what the first one is doing, very much the way Marlowe and Kurtz relate in Heart of Darkness. So it's very subtle uh, formally. It's, it's narrated very brilliantly. It's the one novel since I started teaching at Columbia in 2001. And I ask at the end of the class, if you had to vote one novel off the island, you know, out of all the things that I teach, what it, no one has ever said, get rid of that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's formally brilliant and, and important. And uh, what can I say? I think it works. Um, not sure that's an answer to your question. <laughs> no, I'm going to check that book out. Um, yeah. but now I'm curious about what you think criticism should do for critics and for scholars, because I think that's more um, of what you, you really are trying to take up in your book. And I still do want to put a sort of, I don't know, like a finer point on on your disagreement with the, the Rita Felskis and, and, and uh, Sharon Marcus's of the world um, and why that. I mean, I know you sort of mush together a lot of things in your book, and I do see you doing that, like despite there being these two, there sometimes being a binary in your work, you're then sort of pointing to all the ways in which each contains the element of the other. 
and for sure, right? I mean, they're probably, Rita Felsky and Sharon Marcus would say they're writing polemics of their own, right? Just sort of provocations. And so I, I wonder, I wonder if you're trying to clarify for people, and you say you are, right? For young literary scholars, something about criticism, something about politics. I wonder if you could tell us what that is. Um, well... Uh, and I know you wrote a whole book, but you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, no, it, that's actually a hard question. Yeah. I understand that you know that's what you're there for to ask some of the hard questions. Um, I want, for my own reasons, to believe that criticism is a meaningful activity. I would like to pass on to people who are considering becoming critics themselves the idea that criticism is a meaningful activity. It's not obvious to everybody, certainly to undergraduates and maybe also to graduate students, why criticism should be considered a meaningful activity. Um, Gerald Graff reports somewhere that he asked undergraduates, you know, what do you think we, we want you to, to do as, as students? And the answer that he got back is, learn how to find hidden meanings, any hidden meanings. You know, as long as they're hidden, that's good enough, right? Now, that does not really make criticism into a, you know, meaningful activity. So I would like to think that I'm teaching people, and I'm doing this for myself, that criticism is a meaningful activity in a democracy, because the stuff that it's bringing out is stuff that people need to think about you know, in order to make a democracy work better than this one is working right now. Um, you know, and that includes thinking democratically beyond the borders of your own country, because democracy inside the country is very, very important. But, you know, we also should be thinking about stretching democracy. So, for example, you know, the people that are bombed when the United States decides to bomb country X they don't get to vote on whether they're being bombed or not. So you could say democracy is pretty imperfect to the extent that, you know, or the people who are the victims of economic policies that are decided in Washington, D.C., don't, you know, whose lives are disrupted, you know, in growing cotton in Nigeria or wherever, they don't get to vote on the economic policies that are decided in in Washington. So, you know, I've been interested in what, you know, gets called cosmopolitanism for a long time, partly because it's about this, you know, it's not just democracy in one country, but it's also stretching democracy so that there's, you know, considerations of, of justice matter outside the borders of our, of our own country. Um, I feel like if I'm displaying as a kind of paradigm criticism about things that the students recognize as important outside English departments, then I'm kind of doing my job. And if, if you know, I do a little bit toward inspiring people to think that, first of all, criticism is something you don't just do in universities or in English departments, but it happens in a lot of different cultural spaces and maybe in the kinds of jobs people will have if they work on a magazine or they they're work in a museum, uh, they work in you know public education, but not in the university. 
they are in the business of changing common sense. And you change common sense, you change the world. So, you know, maybe this is this is self-aggrandizing, but I feel like, yeah, properly conceived, criticism is kind of, you know, an important an important operation. I'm not saying that democracy couldn't get along without it. Uh, Helen Small has written a book in which she mocks very appropriately the idea that, you know, if English teachers stopped teaching English, then democracy would crumble. I mean, obviously, democracy needs to depend on a great deal more than people teaching uh, Shakespeare. But, um, it, you know, we make our little contribution. Yeah. So I guess I guess on that, I want to kind of dig into to some of the, the chapters you write about. And I, I wonder if you could talk about hmm, just the role of grievance, we'll say, in sort of contemporary literary criticism, because I still want to I still want to dig deeper into into some of the shifts that I see happening in literary criticism and whether or not and what they mean for literary study more generally. You seem to kind of sometimes like refuse that there have been sort of shifts that are meaningful and how it is we think about literature, or you seem to say that those shifts are sort of useful for, you know, greater inclusion. And that's a kind of just fast way to say that. And I just, I, I wonder, right? Because if we sort of buy the argument that these shifts have been sort of happening for a long time, then what have their effects been? Right. Like, I mean, if we just ask a practical question, okay, well, look, we got, we got diverse syllabi um, where we, we now have, you know, film and all these other kind of media in lit departments. Um, what has the consequence been for the, for, for literature students, for literary study, for literary criticism, for the kinds of learning that are unique to English departments historically? I'm just curious about this. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't go so far as to say that the consequences of spreading out the, uh, the range of objects that are considered legitimate, um, it, let's say in the direction of cultural studies, this would be a way of saying, you know, when we do more music, when we do more film, when we do more, you know, um, social media, new media, uh, all that stuff connects much more directly to the lived experience of the people in our society. On the whole, that's a good thing. Um, I think it's an empowering thing because it means that the experience of our students has a place in the classroom, that they get a chance to speak with some authority in a way that, let's say, I mean, I'm a big fan of teaching the traditional canon which I think, and I have lots to say about, about that, but I can't help but say that when that students will have more relevant experience of, uh, let's say new social media than they will of Chaucer or Milton. You know, I mean, we can, we can make the connections of course, between Chaucer and Milton and their experience the connections have to be made. Um, that, you know, there is something empowering about that. Uh, they are more likely to feel that their studies are directly related to their experience in their lives. And, you know, I think that's great. Um, 
I'm forgetting the beginning of the question, which was... Well, I can rephrase too, because I'm more interested in, in this question in terms of critics. And so I imagine that some of the people you're, you're in argument with are worried about the sort of broadening of, of, of literary study to include all these other forms, are worried about what that means for people's ability to engage with literature critically, but also worried about how folks are being trained, right? And so I have graduate students, for example, who want to study African-American literature and act as though, especially if we're talking about 20th century African-American writers, that somehow they were only reading Black people, which is insane. Or, you know, and this is for, for many folks. I mean, many kind of area studies like Chicano Lit. Chicano Lit doesn't have a sort of separate tradition in the same way that African-American literature does just because it's historical formation. And yet people talk about it as if it does. And so I think many of the critics who you might be in, 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 in kind of contention with, I think their worry is sort of less that there are all these other modes that are, are valuable and there are departments for that. And more that what it means to get a literary education is it, it, now doesn't quite make even professors qualified to to comment on literature in the ways that they once were. And I see this personally amongst my graduate students, a kind of unwillingness to read and a lack of curiosity about where books come from. It's just this idea that all culture is the same. And that's not true. <laughs> Writers read books to write, and especially prior to this moment. And so I think my question is, is, is more about what do all these things mean for literary criticism as practiced by scholars? Should we be afraid of some of these changes in terms of how folks are being trained, the new generation of graduate students? And what does that mean for the continued appreciation of literature if, as if we treat it as if it's, you know, just another option, you know, along, like as if literature doesn't have any, doesn't do anything special and unique and doesn't sort of demand a special kind of attention. Yeah. Okay. Um, Good question, I know. Yeah, actually, a big jumble of questions. There's a, there's a lot in what you said, uh, but it also helps me think of things I should have said in response to an earlier question. Um, you know, you were asking earlier about how I think that that maybe the students have changed, their interests have changed, the kind of education that they're getting has changed, and one of the things I think now listening to you, this last question that I should have said then is that of course we are no longer turning an undergraduate degree into the study of literary history. The literary history as a kind of linear, you know, story that, that where earlier stuff, you know, connects to later stuff that has dropped out. So we're just not, we're saying a degree does not involve necessarily having that knowledge. And that upsets me at the same time. I'm not sure that I see a way of turning the clock back um, what I, what, I mean, what I think personally is I would like to see everybody read Paradise Lost, say, and realize that it's a poem written in response to what may be the first revolution in the world and that they have something really, really important to learn about how revolution looked among Protestants in the 17th century that that connects to how they think about change in their own time. But so that's an argument about we have to be feel connected to the largest possible history, no matter how difficult that that may be. And, you know, in English departments, we have a kind of responsibility to give the people the earlier stuff so that they can make the connections 
between the later stuff that comes easily to them because it speaks to them much more more directly and the earlier stuff that doesn't speak as directly to them that needs more mediation from people like us. Uh, so I, I should have said, it is a sad fact of contemporary pedagogy that literary history has dropped out. And I think it's a challenge for people like us to get people who are, get students who are interested in the recent stuff thinking seriously about the connection between the recent stuff and the earlier stuff, right? I mean, which I think is part of the question you were just you were just asking, talking about, you know, the difference between, let's say, Chicano traditions and, and African-American traditions, which are, you know, quite different, um, you know, or go ahead. Yeah, but aren't treated as such institutionally, right? And so I, I guess, you know, I think for folks who are like real traditionalists in an English department, that, that produces problems, right? I mean, institutionally, like Chicano, Latinx literature, or like Asian American literature are all treated as if they are similar to African American literature as, as formations, as cultural formations. And they're just, they're just not like, they're not, that's not how those traditions were formed. Right. Most Asian American writers are in conversation with English writers or American writers, with white people, but black people have a distinct literary tradition. And that means something for how you approach the study of it. And so I think I'm, I'm, I'm concerned with, you know, how we see the 1960s having opened up the university, right? And certain things sort of getting institutionalized. I'm, I guess I'm interested in the way that that somehow interrupts the ability to actually have knowledge about the very formations that are supposedly being lifted up. And I'm curious about that in relationship to literary criticism as practiced by, by scholars and critics, because this seems to me to be a problem that's coming to head in the field of literary criticism right now, like, and, 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 and what, what generally replaces a kind of deep knowledge of literary history, even among young scholars is now a kind of cultural studies knowledge. And I think that's what many of the people who you're in contention with are arguing against, because that is to their minds. And maybe I share this to a little, some extent, it's a shallow way of engaging with literature. It it just is. It's just, that's not, it's a shallow way of getting, and it's also just incorrect, <laughs> you know, for being honest. Yeah. Um, and so I think I, those are the questions that there are certain kind of institutional things that are happening that look like they advance a certain kind of inclusion, but actually they interrupt a legit, not a legitimate, an informed study of the very literature that they, they supposedly lift up. Yeah. Um, I wish I had studied you a little bit more carefully before this interview. I think I would have, I would have, had a better idea where you're likely to be coming from. Um, no, I mean, not because I, I think you and I are going to disagree, but because I would have been more prepared to speak directly to the kinds of concerns you're mentioning now. Anyway, um, yeah, <coughs> I think that you and I are both, and, and we in the profession generally, are confronted with, call it American presentism, which smushes together, you know, <clears throat> all these so-called ethnic identities and tends to see them as, you know, very, very, very much in the present tense and not want, doesn't tend to want to see the bigger picture. I mean, you know, imagine if, uh, I mean, I, I, I do actually imagine that this is, this is the case, that there are writers you know, let's say Asian American writers 
who are very, very aware of 5,000 years of Chinese literary tradition, right? I mean, that that's pretty far from presentist, right? There's an awful lot of stuff you would need to know or you'd want to know if you're going to see, uh, you know, Chinese writer X, perhaps writing in English, perhaps not, uh, Chinese-American, say, then probably writing in English, also in relation to a Chinese tradition, which may be very, very real to that writer. So, yeah, of course, um, the presentism is is kind of terrifying. And the idea, which you've referred to a couple of times, that let's say if you're a black writer, you know, the only writers that are important to you are black writers. I mean, you read someone like Ralph Ellison, and whom I happen to be kind of a fan of, and it's clear that for Ralph Ellison, it wasn't just black writers that he was paying attention to, right? I mean, Ralph Ellison is the kind of, turned himself into the kind of American monument or monument of world literature that he turned himself into because he was reading a whole lot of different things and thinking through them and kind of wrestling with them. And, you know, when I have taught uh, Invisible Man, that's one of the, certainly one of the things I, I want to say. Even the cultural studies tradition, which Lord knows can be very presentist, I mean, if you take, as I do in, in, in my book, Stuart Hall as the sort of single most important representative of the cultural studies tradition, well, Stuart Hall was writing his dissertation on Henry James, you know, before he sort of moved off into adult education and all the other stuff that for political reasons he wanted to do. But he never stopped being the sort of person who loved the complexities of Henry James, right? And felt that Henry James was his, you know, as much as Henry James belonged to anybody else, Henry James belonged to Stuart Hall, probably more so because Stuart Hall could read him better than most people. So yeah, I mean, we want to encourage our students to read things which are not just about them and wherever it is that they think that they come from, partly because what we believe is that they always come from more places than they realize. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great that's a great phrase. They come from more places than they realize. Um, it's a good note to end on. So thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, I really enjoyed it. Again, I wish I had I had studied you more, but okay, now now I'll I'll study you post interview. <laughs>